0: Good afternoon,
1: and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education, and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now, here's your host, Mary Woods. Good
2: afternoon, everybody. This is your guest host today, Jonathan Ruthier, and I'm really pleased today to have our two guests, uh, Phillip Temple and Leah Claire Bennett, both uh, who are licensed psychologists and are involved in programs that are helping professionals who have been identified as having disruptive behavior. The title of our show today is Taming Disruptive Behavior, and uh, we're looking forward to hearing about how uh, disruptive behavior in the workplace can be addressed. Our first guest is Philip Hempel and he is the director of the Professional Enhancement Program at Pine Grove Behavioral Health and Addiction Services. He's responsible for the management and clinical supervision of professional patients in an outpatient and residential setting. Dr. Hempel has pioneered the assessment and treatment of professionals with disruptive behavior and has co-authored a book in 2013 titled Taming Disruptive Behavior. He received both his master's and doctorate from Tulane University. And Philip's colleague is Leah Claire Bennett, who's a licensed psychologist with the Professional Enhancement Program of Pine Grove Behavioral Health and Addiction Services. She received her Master's and Doctorate degrees from the University of Southern Mississippi in Hattiesburg, and Dr. Bennett has experience with the local county drug court program, the University Counseling Center, and the Veterans Administration. Dr. Bennett has worked with the Professional Enhancement Program for the past four years in vocational and relational issues. Leah Claire and Philip, I want to welcome you both to our show today. Thank you. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. And so, um, you know, I think this is a really great topic, and it's a topic that is always timely in that, you know, we are, uh, you know, we work in organizations where um, you know we human beings are rel- trying to relate to one another towards towards some uh, greater aim and but sometimes uh, you know we end up needing to address behavior in, in that 's either unexpected or certainly is disruptive in the environment and I think this this is a, a great topic to be covering on our show today
3: yeah, we look forward to it, and uh, I agree that um, with all the stress and uh, that uh, society uh, has, uh, expected of professionals and, um, the behaviors that organizations, uh, are expecting, uh, it, it really has an effect on people's ability to be a team and, uh, work as a team and perform in their duties.
2: Mm-hmm. That's right. And, um, so, so, Phil, um, I think, you know, this is an area where not a lot of people have really tackled this, this subject in such a way that you have here, um, both in terms of the, the content of the book that you've put together, but also really looking at this as a uh, an issue to be not just talked about, but, you know, prevented and addressed uh, in organizational settings.
3: Right. The, um, you know, the, the my colleague and I um, got together and, uh, looked at uh, what was available out there in the literature, and we decided that we wanted to gather all of this information and put it into one document with all of the different concepts and processes um, that that really gave people uh, a manual and a guide to be able to go to within the healthcare setting uh, to look at the impact and how it's affecting safety and mistakes and quality and those types of things. He had Written quite a bit about bullying, and bullying goes back um, many years, um, so it was a sort of spinoff for him naturally of uh, dealing with bullying in the workplace and so that became uh, that, that's been a very uh, popular topic and then the uh, Joint Commission, which is a, an organization that um, comes in and does surveys on uh, organizations, healthcare organizations to make sure that they're following the proper standards. Uh, to be treating patients, and in 2009, they released um, their guidelines for the industry uh, to be able to address disruptive behavior in the workplace, and in fact, if organizations did not adhere to these and respond to um, the expectations that the Joint Commission had set, then they were going to be in error and have... uh, these different types of errors that you have to respond to as an organization. You have to have some process in place for managing it um, because ultimately it's affecting uh, patient care and and employee satisfaction and safety.
2: Right. Right. Well, and and certainly, um, you know, something that I think that uh, we can all relate to in some way, you know, in some shape or form. Um, I, you know, when I was reading your book and and thinking about this topic, you know, images came to me of like the, you know, the Fox TV show House, you know, of, of having, uh, you know, somebody in your organization who uh, may be brilliant, maybe a, you know, an incredibly talented professional in their discipline, but you know, with whom others just cannot work.
3: Exactly. Uh, whose,
2: whose influence can be so negative on, on the others around them.
3: Yeah, I mean, the struggle has been that, you know, uh, society has found entertainment in some of these behaviors. Uh, and, and that's, that's, uh, alarming to me, uh, because in a subtle way, that's a form of accepting these types of behaviors. And, um, yeah, I mean, you know, House is very popular, but he's a, a poster child for disruptive behavior. I mean, all you do is show any clip, um, and, uh, from the, the, um, series and you can, certainly point out examples of this. Um, and you know, it it it's really easy to see, but it's not tolerated really in in fact in the workplace, uh there's strong um, uh consequences for people with disruptive behavior. I mean people are uh patients are affected, their safety, there's errors made um, in the in the uh delivery of care there's human resource issues and and just the culture of the organization uh can have such a negative uh divisive um experience that people don't want to work there so there's there's a uh, quite a bit of money having to be spent on recruiting and retraining people um and you know the, the legal there's legal ramifications there's just uh the public uh being aware of some of these behaviors and an impact on safety uh, those Those are all areas that uh, uh, you know are are being affected by the in, within these organizations
2: mm-hmm. so it 's really really a widespread issue, uh, not just in terms of you know maybe how commonly it occurs but but the collateral damage from from behaviors that are considered disruptive to others in the workplace
3: exactly and uh, the expectation is really that Every individual that works in the organization is held to this standard of, uh, you know, making sure that all the staff uh, are, are aware of uh, the policies and procedures that the organization has to offer. And, you know, unfortunately, some uh, people are afraid to bring forward some of these um, fears, uh, you know, that they have. So a lot of times this behavior does go underreported. Um, and people just sort of don't know how to report it. They're afraid of re- being retaliated against. They they may um, the the organization may have a poor history of responding to these types of behaviors. Um, and you know some people may be perceived as being untouchable. They're they're so powerful in the organization that uh, they really can't be challenged. So you know th- those are some of the reasons that pe- some of this goes underreported. Um, but. The really expectations are that uh, people are addressing this and intervening on this.
2: So, um, so Phil, what was it you know specifically for you that really inspired you to get involved in this work and to um, you know put put your thoughts together in the, in this book and and also uh, you know to be to be out speaking about you know how do we address these issues?
3: Well, one of the things was a. Uh, well, it was a lack of clarity out there. You know, there's so many definitions that are floated around that, you know, it's sort of like um, Justice Potter back in the 60s when he said, you know, he said something to the effect that I know it when I see it. And that's sort of how people are uh, referring to disruptive behavior. Like, we really don't know um, the definition of it. Um, but when an executives were questioned in their organization. Ninety-five uh, percent of them could say, "Yeah, I've dealt with this on a regular basis." Um, even though we don't have a clear definition of of what this is, um, they they routinely see it. So one of the one of the goals was to really bring the information forward so that we had a very clear um, understanding and definition of what we're describing here. And through that was to, to highlight and, and bring some attention to the impact and the cost and the risk of not addressing this. And so, um, we felt that it was important for a preventive, uh, from a preventive, uh, perspective to, to have some interventions available, some strategies for addressing the behavior, managing it, um, so that, uh, you know, ultimately, uh, patient care and safety is improved and enhanced, um, cultures where people are working in the medical industry, uh, people have better job satisfaction. So we felt that there would just be this ripple effect throughout healthcare, given all of the, uh, changes that were going on at the time that we were writing this book, um, and just the stressors that were occurring in medicine, uh, as larger organizations were, um, uh, you know, uh, consolidating and mergers and acquisitions and those types of things were happening and the physicians were feeling less and less independent and autonomous.
2: Right. Well, and certainly that creates a stressful um, scenario for physicians who, who are used to having autonomy and, um, you know, while that has its pluses and minuses as well, it, you know, I think that it's, it's a normal human reaction when your autonomy becomes a little bit more restricted that, um, you know, it would create some feeling of distress and maybe therefore lead to some behavioral issues that uh, you know uh, are not maybe the healthiest way of dealing with that kind of stress, but certainly exactly. they play themselves out. Exactly. Right. Right. And so um, I'm just going to take a, a quick quote from your book here because um, we've talked about how the you know it's hard to define sometimes, but people say they know it when they see it and. Um, uh, you know, I think one way you've defined it here in the book is it, it may be overt or passive. It may occur face-to-face, over the telephone or other media. It includes, but not limited to, physical threats, physical outbursts, slamming doors, throwing equipment, physical assault, verbal outbursts, use of profanity, intimidating behavior, demeaning or dis- disrespectful comments, racial slurs, telephone hang-ups, refusal to perform assigned tasks. Um refusal to answer questions or return phone calls and pages and condescending language. Those are all, um, you know, pretty extreme behaviors.
3: Yeah, yeah, and ones that, um, you know, 15, 20 years ago were tolerated, um, and there weren't uh, interventions and, and consequences, but nevertheless, they were still having an impact on organizations. And so, again, to provide some... Some real descriptive, uh, examples for people to say that they can't not say that this behavior, they don't know how to define this behavior anymore. So we wanted to give exact examples of what, uh, is meant by disruptive behaviors and, and, uh, so that people, uh, they had a better clarification. Um, to To what they 're looking for and what they 're experiencing, because some people just don 't have language to describe what they 're experiencing, they just feel like that wasn 't right. you know I felt like mm-hmm. you know this person took advantage of me or you know the the, the you know i don 't feel like i 'm on a team with this person because they 're reluctant to delegate tasks with me, so you know giving people the uh, the language to describe what they 're experiencing was really important and a real focus of this piece of work.
2: Right. And in so many cases, it's being able to put the words there that help somebody describe what they're experiencing, that felt sense that they have on the inside, and being able to articulate that in some way that, that validates and makes sense of their experience um, you know, is, is a key to unlocking a solution. So we're um, we're going to talk a little bit more after our commercial break about um, you know disruptive behavior in organizations and and specifically maybe from uh, Leah Claire, you know, what are some what's some of the work that's being done to help individuals who are exhibiting disruptive behavior. So we'll be back after the break.
5: common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders that's westbridge.org family Center recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders
6: every day you hear so much about different aspects of the health and wellness field one day you hear one thing and the next day you hear something that contradicts what you heard the day before how do you know what's right try tuning in to the cutting edge of health and wellness today with dr neil nathan our goal is to educate and explore this field with guest experts in order to help you take control of your health and well being. Listen Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health and Wellness. Healthcare today is full of complex questions and even more complex answers. On top of making choices about healthcare, how do you know that you're making the right choices? Natural medicine or conventional medicine? Should I seek a second opinion? What if I just don't feel right about the treatment I am recommended? Get the answers by tuning in to Rising Through It with Dr. Danielle McDuff, live every Friday afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel.
4: Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness
2: Welcome back, everybody. This is Jonathan Ruthier, your guest host today on One Hour at a Time. And we are talking about taming disruptive behavior and specifically um, how to help individuals and organizations who are struggling with uh, the effect of disruptive behavior in their work settings. And our guests today are Phil Hempel and Leah Claire Bennett, both are um, uh, doctorate-level professionals who are working in the field specifically around um, professional enhancement and helping people who are uh identify as having or as being in need of assistance with disruptive behavior. So Lea Claire just before the break we started talking a little bit about um, you know the the definition of disruptive behavior and that really sort of begs the question for us uh in terms of when when, when an organization agrees on a definition how do they go about and assess their employees, uh, you know, who may be identified as having some behaviors that could be damaging to their culture and environment?
7: I think initially the the reports are going to come, you know, from internal referrals, and I I think that, you know, the, the assessment piece there are lots of um, there are lots of agencies out there to help assess, um, but there are different many different factors that that need to be looked at when these these individuals are identified to look at and be able to identify what what is contributing to the issue. Um, So being able to refer and and have a full comprehensive evaluation where a person's um, psychological issues can be evaluated as well as stressors that are currently occurring. Um, There may be uh, health issues that are going on as well as I think a lot of physicians are are working longer years and there may be an issue with aging that could be contributing to some of the disruptive pieces. Um, So there are lots of of areas that that need to be assessed and I think doing that with professionals and and having that assistance can be helpful once these people or once these individuals are identified within the system
2: um, as problematic. So where does that really begin? I mean, this this, um, this sounds a lot like you know maybe an employee, the role of an employee assistance program or a human resources department in an organization.
7: I think initially, you know, a lot of times, and, and this book has been helpful that that's been written to to outline a lot of these. But initially, it, it's about you know when when they're identified. Um, I think the system usually has different things that you know they attempt to write the behavior, um, and there are some interventions that can be set up that are initial interventions that can happen, you know, being referred to anger management therapy, for example, and, and doing six weeks of therapy or, or completing a process of outpatient therapy. Um, so there are things that can be done, you know, just within the system. I think that, um, oftentimes or or some of the times those those interventions are not adequate and and the behaviors obviously continue. And then that takes it to another level of intervention where there needs to be more of a formal assessment, which kind of what I was talking about before where lots of different avenues are examined in detail to find specifically what is contributing to the disruptive behavior. Mm -hmm. So what was it...
2: What would that kind
5: of an
7: assessment look like? They're, they're, um, the comprehensive assessments um, are done by a team of professionals. There's usually a, a lead psychologist um, as well as one to two physicians. The physician's um, psychiatrist would be one of the physicians, and usually there's an addiction psychiatrist or addiction addictionologist that, that will also be on that panel. Um, a nurse is also included in the assessment, and... Mm-hmm. The person, when they come in, it's usually a three- to five-day process. Um, they come in and are seen by the psychologist. The psychologist does an interview with, with psychological testing, so that's also mm-hmm. completed. Um, the psychiatric interviews are done, as well as um, drug testing and to make sure that it's not a chemical, um, a chemical addiction or problem, and then... Um, All of those pieces are put together in addition to collateral information, which I think is a very key part where the evaluators attempt to get information from the um, person's workplace, so from supervisors and and other individuals that have been been impacted by the behavior, so that they can speak and, and have a clear understanding of what's been happening in the workplace. Because most of the time when you're when you're seeing the disruptive for the assessment piece there's there's a lot of denial um, and a lot of blame that's that's external it's, it's, it's someone else's fault it's, it's um, the system's fault and so they they typically have a very difficult time being able to to self evaluate the issues and and what's been going
2: on So I would imagine you'd be met you'd be meeting a lot of resistance to somebody you know or from somebody somebody was referred for this kind of an evaluation.
7: Absolutely. Absolutely. And that, and it, it varies. I mean, it, it's not um, across the board. There are some people, I think, that come in that, that realize there's a problem and, and want to get assistance and get help, and they recognize that things have been slowly spiraling out of control um, <clears throat> within, you know, usually it's work, and then there are other areas of their life that they're seeing um, similar things happen. But um, yeah so and then there are those that that have no awareness um, and they seem to portray themselves as as victims to the system and and they're being singled out and you know this term disruptive is just out to get physicians those types of things where where they fight um not only at the evaluation but then will fight as as they enter the treatment process
2: right right so it's it sounds like it's just really important to um you know to be able to acknowledge all of the, all of those feelings and you know the the level of resentment that somebody might be bringing with them to the process because you know how can you help somebody with this kind of a scenario especially if they're you know typically a maybe maybe a high, really um highly productive person or somebody in you know in the work environment that has uh maybe generating a lot of revenue for the company or for the hospital and um yeah but still has these ongoing challenges in the workplace
7: right absolutely and it it um it definitely i mean it's 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 difficult to to bring those individuals in and they i mean they're they they have different differing levels of power in the system and and how they've used that power um to get things or get away with things for years and so there there can be um I, I think meeting this process initially. Um, with a, a lot of the disruptives, I would say there there is that that significant level of resistance in fighting the process and really not wanting to to um, look at where the issues lie.
2: Well, what are um, you know what are the, what are some of the things that you find in particular that um, you know people have a hard time seeing? Well, as
7: you guys were were going through some of the when you read off the list of the the um, disruptive behaviors I think a lot of those are are very overt such as you know slamming doors and, and yelling at other individuals but uh, sometimes with these these behaviors a lot of them are very covert um, I mean the intimidation is on there but intimidation can be used with silence or um, a refusal to act on things a refusal to complete charts um, so there can be, these very passive behaviors that they're passive-aggressive against the system. And I think that, you know, oftentimes with the disruptives, they, they have um, the defense initially that, you know, the reason I engaged in this behavior is because I was helping the patient. And they, they justify and, and use a lot of, of that rationale to, you know, say that, that I was doing this for the good of the patient. And um, to me, that's that's usually one of the first, um, areas to go after is helping them see that, you know, they they're not seeing the impact of their behavior on an entire system, um, mm-hmm. and and being able to then really look at the personality dynamics that are increasing this person's um, are really protecting the person from being able to see where these problems are lying in uh, their interactions with other people. Um, right. that that is a a, a a i guess a place of entry for helping them begin to see and look at these behaviors and their impact on other people
2: right, right. and it's not not dissimilar to um, you know having helping somebody to see the impact of their drinking on their family or um, you know their uh, not taking care of their symptoms of depression in terms of their, you know, um, their relationships, right?
7: Right, right. Um, and you know, as with the, the alcoholism and the depression and, and treatment of those, you'll you'll find people that are very motivated um, to change these patterns, especially when they I think they begin to see the impact on on family members and how they're unable to be a father or a husband because of, of these issues. Um, I think oftentimes with the physicians in the, the workplace, they're, they're all, also getting a lot of accolades for their behaviors, um, you know, seen as, as people that are going fight to for, fight for the right things within the system, and, and they're reinforced with, with large salaries or reinforced with, um, with praise for the, the great work that they do, and pay, my patients love me. Um, and so they don't have those those consequences that, that have come, or the consequences that they're able to really see. Um, they see mm-hmm. the, the positive things that they're having an impact on, like with patients getting better.
3: The right. other thing I think, is, Jonathan, I think that's true with uh, what you're describing, is that the organization can sometimes resemble a family when you're talking about addiction or addiction. Mental health. So, you know, they may have a history of tolerance, just like a family has a history of tolerance. They may have like a code of silence in the family, just like the the organization may have a code of silence where they don't really address these things. You know, they may have just the fear of um, antagonizing the individual. You know, don't disrupt the person who's drinking or has the mental health issue. Um, you know, so so you see. Uh, and a very similar dynamic with the organization being sort of like the family uh, of the addictive individual um, so th- that's that 's another important component to consider in the assessment and the intervention as well
2: right yeah, because you're really you know um, this this is the elephant in the room right i mean the uh, if everybody is in some way or the system is supporting the, the, the individual's behavior because in some way there's a, actually a benefit, whether it's avoidance of conflict or, uh, you know, improved bottom line for the organization, then, you know, there are going to be supportive mechanisms in the organization that keep the behavior alive. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Right. Great. Great. Well, we're going to uh, we're going to cut the break here in just a second. And when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about uh, assessing the organization and really looking at how organizations can prevent and address uh, positively address um, disruptive behavior.
4: You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness.
0: Do you know about Reiki? This method of healing can complement Western medicine as well as other alternative practices. Besides healing, it can have the additional effect of making you feel more positive about yourself and the world around you. By tuning into For the Love of Reiki with host Paula Vale, you'll find how Reiki can improve your health, bring balance into your life, and fill you with joy. For the Love of Reiki is broadcast live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health & Wellness Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to
4: Voice America Health & Wellness
2: Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome back to One Hour at a Time. This is Jonathan Ruth here, your guest host today, and if you're just joining us, we are here with two guests who are um, helping us understand the organizational impact and the, the way to address disruptive behavior in organizations. Our guests today are Philip Hempel and Leah Claire Bennett, both of Pine Grove in Mississippi. So... Um, So, Phil, just before the break, we talked a little bit about, uh, you know, sort of the the role of the organization as uh, looking at an organization as a family. And, you know, that calls to mind really um, sort of thinking about a system that that, – that helps to sustain a particular behavior. And in this case, we're talking about disruptive behavior. So what are some of the things that you look for uh, when assessing the organizational and system dynamics um, that may be contributing to the ongoing disruptive behavior?
3: Well, first off, my, my colleague that uh, co-authored the book with Marty Martin, uh, he really talks about John Cotter's work on urgency and the importance of that, you know, having that cultural inertia of doing something. Leading change was one of John Cotter's books, and a sense of urgency. So he really likes uh, citing those books related to uh, you got to do something, and you have to really act. And so that, that process, you know, not everybody... Um, is up for that. Some difficult, you know, some leaders have difficulties with that. Um, Some of them, you know, kind of hope the problem will just take care of itself without putting forth any effort, and that's really a common error. Some people just are so marred in um, taking that first step because they just don't want all of the sequela, all the consequences that are going to fall when you take that first step. Um, So, you know, they... You know, they they sometimes uh, will go and try to hide behind some of the legal um, components in the organization instead of you know just being direct and uh, addressing the person. So you know, some individuals have uh, difficulty um, holding uh, others to, to to these different standards, and um, you, know, you really uh, want someone who is going to be open to having an organizational hierarchy, which you have to have in a, in a system like this, but also someone who's going to be willing to act and really frame this like an ethical issue. You know, uh, this isn't just an organization. This is like a, a, a medical ethical issue, a patient safety, a patient care issue. Um, and so framing it like that increases the, the possibility um Of of urgency and people acting, and you know, so so making sure that the individuals have the resources uh, and and being able to to respond that that's that's really important. Um, Setting expectations in, in the organization, like really doing a lot of preventive work, can be really helpful. Um, so that you, you have ongoing education and you really empower all the individuals in the organization to be able to um, effectively address this issue and, and make sure you have to um, push the policies. Um, and push them out in front of orientation to new workers, annual orientations, team building types of meetings. So just continually um, putting the expectations out there and the processes that are available to people and then taking them very seriously when they do come forward, not just um, saying, well, that's not a credible uh, incident or something like that. And, and so, but, but taking it serious, having a committee, having, um, uh, a medical executive committee, uh, that, that reviews all of these and, uh, and responds appropriately. And this starts at the board oftentimes, so it's really at the top through management. Um, so everybody has to be committed, um, to this and, and, and really have an investment.
2: So, um, you know, thinking about that, though, there's, you know, is there a difference here between disruptive behavior and, um, you know, illegal behavior, for instance, um, you know, where there's maybe degrees of intensity or degrees of harm that, that can take place from this? And do you find that it's it's uh, a challenge sometimes for organizations to really embrace an approach to something that, that may feel a little bit less impactful and then say you know obvious breach of ethical you know guidelines or or something that's frankly illegal.
3: Yeah, I think when you're in the medical field you're you're dealing uh although there's an art to medicine it's much more um scientific like you do this and then this is the reaction you have this intervention you do this assessment. So there's a lot more sort of evidence base and then when you start to add in there um, you know, taking responsibility for your actions. Well, that can be um, a judgmental or it can be uh, something that that people can easily challenge. Like, how can you say I'm too rigid or stubborn? I mean, you know, so, so when you have a little bit of gray area, you have some people who are much more likely to push back from those types of things. But um, obviously you have um, grave uh, types of behaviors that are illegal or, or. um you know, totally, uh, can, can, people can have charges pressed against them. It's not just sarcastic or flippant language. You can have someone with assault or something like that. Uh, and you do have some civil, uh, lawsuits that take place, uh, at, at different times. Um, but that's a, that's something I'm not prepared to speak to about the healthcare laws. But, um, but certainly, um, yeah, you can have both of those and, and, and variations of those.
2: And do you find that organizations struggle sometimes? I mean, let's you know, let's take the case, uh, which I think was a great illustration in your book, of uh, a physician who's who's a significant generator of revenue for the organization, um, and you know, as a, compared to maybe another person, uh, you know, in a leadership position who's who doesn't have re- revenue gen- generating responsibilities, or another physician who doesn't bring as much revenue in. And Do organizations struggle with with how to Address disruptive behavior uh, equally and effectively in those kind of cases
7: I think that I, I think that's true um, as Philip was describing earlier about the the willingness to act and the consistency in those actions. I think that to me that does happen when when there are varying degrees of things that are intervened on because um, we'll have physicians here. Are, that have disruptive and say, well, they didn't go after this person and this person does this, you know, all the time. Um, and so there's, there's a degree of um, separation that then gets created as opposed to seeing that these are um, all equally important. Um, and I think it, when that happens, it undermines any of the interventions within the system. So going back to the system level, it, it becomes a, a less effective um system and approach to the problem when there are people that are looked on differently based on revenue, for example.
2: Right. So it's a situation where you really want to apply things as evenly as possible in terms of its impact on other people and, you know, the the productivity of the team as a whole, not just the individual. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things in terms of, uh, you know, looking at this issue from a systems perspective, we talked about um, it being, uh, uh, common features of somebody who has been a target of disruptive behavior. I thought that was an interesting um, that was an interesting concept to, to put in here. I think an important one in terms of how things you know are sustained. Um, so maybe before we talk a little bit more about um, you know the, the effective strategy for dealing with with some of this behavior, you know wh- what are some of those other dynamics? That that keeps some of this behavior alive. But, Claire, you want to talk about that one?
7: So you're talking about what what within the system is, when it's not addressed to keep the the behavior occurring, right? I, I mean, I think that um, when there is the the lack of leadership, um, that that's a major impact, um, and that within the the system when people um, don't believe that there are going to be consequences or they believe or, or the system is not educated in terms of what disruptive behavior is and how to, um, how to intervene or, or that it's going to be intervened on, um, then they go, they, the behavior continues. And the impacts, as, as Philip noted before, about how that, that impacts significantly on the entire system.
2: hmm you know, it's really, um, I was really struck by some of the, the data that was presented in the book, which, you know, uh, I'm reading right from here on uh, page 41. In a survey of over 1,600 physician executives, almost all, 95, over 95% reported regularly encountering disruptive physician behavior, and nearly three out of four are stated that these cases nearly always involve the same physician, and it's more than a one-time event. It was just a staggering number to me.
3: Yeah, I mean, you often hear from leaders in healthcare talk about, you know, like ninety-five percent of their time goes to five percent of the individuals. Yeah, um, and so it's there's a need to uh, spend these take these cases, these individuals with these behaviors take a lot of time, a lot of resources. They're long term. Um, so you know there there's a tendency to uh um, try to sort of um you know wait to the last minute or wait till you have no other choice and you know to do this and if, further in that in that article it talks about how routinely these behaviors are occurring as well. this isn't just like you know oh it's happening once a year. these are like routine behaviors that they're engaging. Um, some of the certain uh, individuals in the organization that they 're having to intervene on
2: mm-hmm. yeah, and I think the um, i mean I think the positive part of this is that you know with education like this and and developing a good plan, this behavior can be addressed, and it doesn 't have to be something that just that people just accept um, i really it was uh, I was struck by the fact that 89.7% of medical schools formally teach professionalism in the curriculum. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So,
3: yeah. So it so certainly seems like,
2: go ahead. I was going to say, so it certainly seems like uh, the field is becoming more aware of this as an issue and, uh, you know, and medical schools are starting to address it um, you know, a little bit more proactively. I think
7: it is a trend that is occurring um, slowly, but yeah.
2: Great. So, um, so we are uh, going to go to commercials here, and when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about um, you know the strategies that are involved in helping organizations address disruptive behavior and uh, and prevent it from happening in the first place.
5: common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders that's westbridge.org family Center recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders
4: running is one of the fastest growing sports with everyday people stepping it up and training for that next big race goal the in-flight running show With Coach Michael Merlino is your guide to running, whether you're just getting started or training for the Boston Marathon. By paying attention to and following the tips offered by Michael and his guests, you'll be able to take your running to new heights and reach your next finish line with confidence. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Health & Wellness.
2: And we are here with Phil Hempel and Leah Claire Bennett from Pine Grove Behavioral Health. Uh, and we're talking about um, helping people and organizations deal with disruptive behavior. And uh, just before the break, we started to you know, have a little discussion about what organizations can do. Um, first, we've talked a little bit about assessment, but now, once once an assessment has uh, identified that, that disruptive behavior is taking place, you know, what can organization do to take steps to to address it specifically and to prevent it from happening again in the future?
7: Uh, to me, I, I think the the really important thing for organizations is um, follow through. So once the assessment has been done, at the end of that process, recommendations would be made based on all of the information and all the data collected throughout that process, so using the psychological testing and, and collateral information, and uh, then taking all that information to formulate what those recommendations for how to best intervene with this particular person. And I think that the organizations can best use that information by following what has been outlined to do. And I think sometimes organizations struggle with that. They, they get those rec- recommendations and they have difficulty implementing them or, or kind of going back to the norm as opposed to following through with what's been outlined and how to address the, the individual, whether that means treatment, outpatient, or residential treatment, et cetera, just to make sure that the individual gets that.
2: Well, it sounds like the organizations, you know, the board and leadership of an organization really have this responsibility to address things and and monitor things carefully and also to have an ongoing feedback process. Actually, you talk about, in the book, a feed-forward process, which I really like. Um, So, uh, Phil, I don't know if you want to say a little bit more about what that looks like.
3: Yeah, before I say that, though, I think the leaders in the healthcare organization can also benefit from some kind of feedback system themselves so that they can have a place to go to 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 get some feedback from either colleagues or peers or people they may be in organizations with so that they can sort of uh, try to problem solve with those folks some of the things that they're experiencing. You know, we all have blind spots, so sometimes, you know, those leaders need to have like um, a coach, like a blind spot coach, and that, that that in and of itself will, will assist a person to sort of evaluate how did they get to this point? How do we get to this point where this particular person was exhibiting all these behaviors and this was the intervention that, that we um, suggested or we're in the middle of here? So as a healthcare leader, it's important to have those um, protective factors in place for themselves. Now, if you're willing to be open to that type of uh, feedback and um, scrutiny, well, then, you know, it's a lot easier to ask the person with the disruptive behavior um, that I want you to participate in this multi-source feedback process as well. Um, right. It's different, you know, because this is much more specific to their behavior, but, um, you know, there there's a long history of multi source feedback and three sixty feedback uh, being valid and accurate in the in the literature here. Um, so there are numerous uh instruments that uh really focus on humanistic skills and look at weaknesses and strengths and um, what are some of the potential benefits uh that you that you can have uh as an individual but also as an organization in creating change. And I think what happens with these multi-source feedback uh interventions uh is that everybody in the organization who's filling these um, questionnaires out about a single person they're kind of reflecting on well, well do I really do this behavior or have I seen this in other people in our organization so it really has this impact across the organization when you start to implement these types of uh, multi-source feedback, 360 feedback. We're very used to these. I mean, you know, how many times you go to a hotel, you go to the bank. I got one from the bank the other day. I mean, how how much can I really assess things? I got to assess going into the lobby of a bank. Um, so we're kind <laughs> of used to, um, you know, providing this feedback. So it's just another way of, um, you know, increasing accountability, increase in responsibility, improving the team's effectiveness, identifying any needs, coaching needs or training needs or therapeutic needs. And it just increases the value uh, of, the, of the organization.
2: Well, I think, what, you know, one of the things that is interesting about that is, you know, when you just start asking people questions, it, across the board, you know, uh, asking them to assess themselves. You know, have I ever, uh, you know, spoken to a colleague disrespectfully or, you know, to what extent do you, you know, do you see this in your subordinates, you know, as a leader? um, It does help sort of raise consciousness in the moment just, just when you're even being asked the question, you know, before a problem has been identified. Is that right? That's
3: correct. That's correct. And we know that, you know, um, multi-source feedback, 360 feedback is typically more accurate than just, uh, a single rater or a supervisor rating one person. Um, so, and, it, you know, people are more open to it because there's multiple people, uh, and it's more likely to improve their behavior and their performance.
2: Mm-hmm. Right, right. Well, I mean like you said, having multi sources really supports the validity of the information so it can become less of a blame game or a he said she said kind of situation right
3: right, and it 's an opportunity to catch people doing something good. you know you don 't always want to just focus on negative behaviors. you want to reinforce uh, appropriate um, civil. Uh, behavior, good citizenship in your organization, expressing empathy. Um, you know, you want to you want to have um, positives as well embedded in the dimensions of this survey. So being open to others, I mean, those types of things are, are really important. Teaching others, being willing to teach others. I mean, those are things that you are also asking in the surveys, not just arrogance or um, exploitation or intimidation or cultural insensitivity. You're not just asking those types of questions. You're, you're asking um, positive ones as well, like the impact on a team or something like that.
7: Mm-hmm. I think right. also with, you know, it, it does highlight things that are going well, but it, it also allows when you're doing these to, to provide earlier intervention. When you know um, that it's a problem, and so you, it can be addressed as opposed to it just being a lingering problem that everybody knows about but no one's doing anything about. And so then the, the leadership has that information to be able to, to intervene and, and help the person or get the help that they need so that um, the system can, can be healthy.
2: Right. Right, well, and having that information is the first, you know, first step in really saying, okay, you know, maybe there's something here I need to take a look at in a way that feels safe and not threatening to the person who may be engaging in something disruptive. Right. Exactly, exactly. So it's, you know, the power of perspective is the way I
3: see it, the way you see it, and then the way it really is.
2: Right. (laughs) So one of the things uh, that I thought was really useful, uh, you talked a little bit about the profile of a derailed healthcare executive, and, and, and tell me a little bit about, you know, tell our listeners a little bit about about
3: that? Well, I think if people get, uh, you know, bogged down and not able to act, if they don't have good, effective relationships, if they're just overwhelmed by the complexity of their position um, and just unable to handle pressure well, I mean, those are some of the um, uh, symptoms that people are having difficulties uh, as a leader. And if they start to shift blame and not honor the boundaries and be sensitive to others, I mean, those are those are much more in-depth, um, you know, uh, symptoms that really need to be addressed because, you know, uh, leaders are, are prone to burnout as well, not just the frontline staff, not just the individuals who are caring for the patients directly, uh, mid-level and upper-level as well.
2: Right, so it's a, it's across the organization. I I want to thank both of you for uh, for, for coming on the show today and sharing with our listeners, um, you know, the strategies to help assess and uh, effectively um, approach the the issue of disruptive behavior in organizations, in particular in healthcare organizations. And uh, as we sign off here again, I just want to say thank you both for uh, for sharing that information today.
7: Thank you, Jonathan. It was good to be here.
3: Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity, and uh, and it's good meeting you.
2: Great. Well, I want to thank all our listeners for being with us today and for downloading the podcast uh, at your convenience, and we look forward to having you again uh, participating in our next show. Thank you again from one hour at a time